This morning, we will um, spend some time regarding prophets. We're going to do this in two different sections. I would say this, that the young girl back in the 1800s was a late teenager. We've been at the church now about 10 years, and to my memory, during that time, we've never had this subject presented at, at a sermon hour. Um, and so t- today we will do so. Let me, let me just uh, quote a few things that she said about the Bible talking about Ellen White, uh, a few things she said about the Bible. Then we're going to have a little interlude and have a very special guest that is now actually resting in Jesus, waiting for the trumpet to sound and for the clouds to depart and uh, see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. First of all, though, a few words from the pen of Ellen White. You know, Steps to Christ has been now translated in something like 150 languages around this world. 150 languages. Incredible. She's written over millions and millions of words. She was uneducated, a young, sickly girl, when it all started. She said words like these, The Bible and the Bible only was to be our guide, and we are never to depart from it. Never to depart from it. She said words like this, Lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon, song, and prayer. Let all be directed to pointing souls, confused, bewildered, lost, to the Lamb of God. Let the science of salvation be the burden of every sermon. The theme of every song pointing to Jesus. Lift up Jesus. She said also, the Bible is the only rule of faith and doctrine. The only rule of faith and doctrine. You know, as I've contemplated this over the last few decades, Ellen White wasn't the problem. It was some of her disciples that got things all mixed up. She wasn't the problem. Now at this point, I would like to um, have a little interlude and... We're going to hear from a friend of mine who I spent time with, and he influenced my life. In fact, without him, I wouldn't be standing here today. He's recorded on an old scratchy recording that you're going to see in a few moments. His name, of course, is HMS Richards. Elbert just handed me another little note about him. Um, You know, he was often seen in Glendale walking to work at that old Voice of Prophecy office, having his Bible out there, reading a book. You know, he was blind in one eye. And I well remember the story of <laughs> when, in the old days, somebody donated a Cadillac, a big, long Cadillac with multiple seats in it to the Voice of Prophecy. They didn't buy it. It was donated to them. And uh, on one occasion, the quartet and he were going all over the United States for camp meetings and such. They rolled up in this dusty old car and... Um, dust to fly in, and they got out in their crumpled suits, ready to go to a tent to preach the next Sabbath, I mean the very next day on Sabbath, uh, the sermon for the camp meeting. Young people ran up to him and said, oh, Elder Richards, you have to speak here in five minutes at the youth tent. And he said, what? 
I didn't know I was going to do that. And he pulled in his, out of his little pocket, a little pocket Bible, and he took his thumb and he fingered the pages and said, well, there must be a sermon in here somewhere. <laughs> you know, he was, he was a very humorous man, but a, very, a man that just loved his Lord without a doubt. And Elbert, as I say, just handed me this. Um, he had read the Bible so many times that he lost count. And I heard him say that he read the Bible each January, cover to cover, and then read it again all that year, slowly, studying it in more depth. And he read an estimated over a hundred times he's read his Bible. Um, and other people commented that they often saw him preaching, holding his Bible upside down. Meaning that he had memorized the Bible so well, he didn't have to read the Bible. There must be a sermon in here somewhere. Okay. Elbert, if you'd be so kind as to now show us these uh, wonderful words from Elder H.M.S. Richards, what he thought about Ellen White. Very well. Preacher and radio evangelist H.M.S. Richards heard Ellen White preach and recounts his experience. Yes, I knew Sister White in this way. I heard her preach once and saw her, of course. It was in Boulder, Colorado, at the camp meeting in 1909, in a building with an iron roof right at the base of the Red Rocks there. It's on the campus of the University of Colorado. And uh, she was there, I suppose. There were 200 Adventists and maybe uh, the rest of 1,000 people or 800 people were just the people of the town, people of various denominations wanted to see the Adventist prophet. I can remember when she came on the grounds in a surrey drawn by two horses, and Willie White, her son, was with her, and Miss McIntyre, her companion and nurse. And the meeting that night, she preached to us. I was sitting at her left hand about, oh, 15 feet from her. could see her plainly, of course, right there platform was about a foot, foot and a half high, and she had this big, thick Bible. She was preaching faithfully, giving God's message, and uh, I, I was interested. It was interesting. She was just a dear, sweet Christian mother or grandmother telling us what we ought to do. Just as she started to talk to finish off, it started to rain on that iron roof, and you can imagine. Now remember, no amplifiers in those days, except you carried your amplifier with you. And she's had a regular preaching voice, and you know, from this, from this conversational tone or voice that she'd been using, she went into her real preaching voice. And you could hear her voice just like a silver bell, right through all of that confusion caused by that rain. She could talk right through the rain noise. And then she talked just about a minute, and then she kneeled down to pray. She told her son, I must pray for us. And she came over on my side of the platform and kneeled down to pray. I can hear her now. She said, not our father, but oh, my father. And from that moment on, it was a personal communion between her and the Heavenly Father. In just a minute or two, there seemed to be a mighty power come over that meeting. And I felt it. I was just a, just a boy. And, I was a member of the church, I'd been baptized about a year and a half before, and I could feel that power until finally I, I was afraid to look up for fear I'd 
see God standing right there by. She was talking with him. She'd forgotten all about us. And she was in the presence of the Lord. And a minute or two more went by, and that whole crowd, you could hear them weeping, crying over their sin. A tremendous revival, really. Spiritual revival, that mighty power of God. When she preached, God blessed her as a preacher. But when she began to pray, he honored her as his prophet before the people. I'll never forget it. One of the most... I thought you would appreciate those words from HMS Richards, uh, preparation for our sermon today. A um, couple other short quotations, and then we're going to go to the sermon. Every Christian is duty-bound to take the Bible as a perfect rule of faith and duty. And then lastly, here's a testimony from Ellen White's husband, James White. He said this, and wrote this in the Review and Herald. The Bible is a perfect and complete revelation. It is our only rule of faith. We're privileged today to have a visitor via DVD, Dwight Nelson from Pioneer Memorial Church in Andrews University. He had an experience that he will tell you later on in his sermon about personally what it means to him, the book Steps to Christ. And uh, so at this time, Dwight Nelson will favor us with a sermon. He's a very powerful speaker. How would you like to become a prophet? For $450, you may. I have it right here. This video and your $450 will bring to you that calling. It's a video put together by Kent Simpson, prophetic minister out of Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm grateful for my student friend, Ethan, who got a hold of this and Figured out what we might be sharing today and said you might want to take a look at this. He is prophetic minister, by the way, in the School of Prophets. And there's a little brochure for that school that comes with the video. May I just read a line or two from the brochure? Prophetic Ministries is committed to raising up a people who have an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. The equipping process begins with the School of Prophets. When you have completed the School of Prophets, you will have in your possession ten videotapes 
Ten titles listed, $45 each, major credit cards accepted. After completion of the School of Prophets, you will receive ordination and ministerial license from Prophetic Ministries Tabernacle of Fort Worth, Texas. You will then become a part of the prophetic move of this ministry. Ordained graduates automatically become a part of the prophetic alumni. They have an alumni association for prophets. The prophetic alumni are seasoned ministers with many different gifts that make up God's army ready to do battle against the psychic network to enroll, call, toll-free, 1-800, and there's the number. You know what? I have a feeling this school is, this school is more about P-R-O-F-I-T-S than prophets. But it is a school of prophets nonetheless. I want to repeat the question. How would you like to become a prophet? Be very careful how you answer that question because the occupational hazards of being a prophet are extremely high and the track record is abysmally discouraging since the ministry of most prophets was terminated by martyrdom. Oh, it is true, the people will love you after you're dead and gone, but while you are alive and here, it is literally a pain in the neck, as any beheaded prophet will tell you. (laughs) How did Jesus himself put it? Woe to you, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, ah, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? Wow. Pretty strong language Jesus uses to indict all those who murder the prophets of their own generation while pretending to revere the prophets of long ago. Present company accepted, of course. Although poor John the Baptist, he was no exception. Neither was he a Baptist, by the way. Just another prophet candidate for martyrdom. And yet six months after he is incarcerated and six months before he is beheaded, Jesus pays him the most sweeping compliment God has ever given to a mortal. And I want you to read it for yourself. Please open your Bible to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 11. I'm glad you've brought your Bible to this university campus congregation. And I trust that you will follow along. By the way, you said, oh, I got out of the dormitory without my Bible. Then just open up the bulletin there in the center panel. We have this passage printed for you just in case. Matthew, rather, the Gospel of St. Matthew. Chapter 11. Let's pick it up here in verse 7. And as they went, two disciples have come from incarcerated John, doubting whether Jesus can truly be the Messiah since he leaves his cousin in prison. If you were the Messiah, you'd free our leader, these disciples of John. Posit to the Master. Now, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Sounds like the Republican primaries now, doesn't it? With the fickle wind of public opinion, there go the politicians. First they lean this way, then the wind goes that way, they're that way. Why, I suppose we've even had some presidents who have been reeds shaken in the wind. What did you go to the desert to find? Did you expect to find a reed blown about? Ah, no, Jesus goes on. 
Verse 8, so what then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes. Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What did you guys go out to see, Jesus asked them. Some three-piece suited matching hanky in the breast-pocketed preacher? What did you go out there to see? Some purple velveted royalty pampered cleric? No. Jesus, you can feel the passion of his own compliment coming. Verse 9, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And now here it comes, the greatest compliment ever given by God to a mortal. Verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Nobody on earth, no greater prophet than John the Baptizer. Now, you must know it's a left-handed compliment because the verse isn't over. And Jesus goes on. Oh, and by the way, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does the second half of the verse remind us? It reminds us that there are people who live in A.D. and there are people who live in B.C. John lived in B.C. before Christ, but the least, Jesus is saying, the very least of you in my new kingdom of grace has the privilege of living in A.D., Anno Domini, and that very reality makes those subjects, the least of us, the most privileged, and in that sense, the greatest privileged ones of all. You say, oh, great, so what? I mean, what does this have to do, Pastor, with our winter journey, the return of the remnant? Here we have been all this winter long being reminded from the scriptures that God has always had a remnant community of faith and truth. From the very beginning of time, there has been a community that has not only preserved present truth, but has been raised up by God to propagate that truth as well. I mean, what is this compliment that Jesus gives to John? How in the world does it fit in with a remnant? What can it have to do? It has a whole lot to do Certainly more than meets the eye. Do you remember our theme text for, for this series? Go back to the, to, to the apocalypse for a moment, will you please? Revelation. We've been at this text. We've seen it from several different angles. Let's go back one more time this winter. Revelation, the apocalypse, last book of your Bible. Chapter 12, verse 17. Very last verse of chapter 12. Let's reread this verse. Something's here that fits in to the greatest compliment ever given to a mortal, John the Baptist being the greatest prophet of all time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon, fallen Lucifer or Satan, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, the remnant of her seed. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now, we all know the dragon, furious. You remember the bookshelf motif. God has always had a remnant community. There will be a final bookshelf on the shelf of sacred history, a final bookend. Furious, enraged at that remnant, the dragon goes off to make war with them. Now, who are these remnant? We have got to nail it down today. Who is that last bookend? Two descriptions here. They are a people, it says, who keep God's commandments... All ten of them. 
That necessitates that whoever this remnant community is, it has to be a Sabbatarian community, i.e., it must be a community that also remembers the fourth commandment, the seventh-day Sabbath. So whatever community this is, they will be Sabbatarians worshiping on the Creator's seventh-day Sabbath. But there are two descriptions here. Not only do they keep the commandments of God, it also reads, and they hold the testimony of Jesus. Now listen, folks, what is this, this testimony of Jesus? What does it mean? Is this testimony about Jesus? Or is it testimony from Jesus? We could spend the rest of the day debating that fine point were it not for two other key markers right here in Revelation. And so real quick, turn over to Revelation chapter 19. What is this testimony of Jesus? Without these two markers, we could spend all day, but the two markers nail it in for us. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. John has just seen a vision, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words from God. Verse 10, then I fell down at his feet. That's the angel. I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, whoa, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus. Wait a minute, there's that line. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of what? Come on, what is it? What is the testimony of Jesus? The spirit of what? Spirit of prophecy. But what does the spirit of prophecy mean? We could spend moments and time debating that were it not for one final marker. But one more marker here. The last chapter of the Bible. The last chapter of Revelation. Turn over to Revelation 22. The the scene we have just... uh, Witness for a fleeting moment is repeated again. Revelation chapter 22. Drop down to verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he, the angel, said to me, you must not do that. Now, this is the identical rerun. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades. Only in the previous verse, he said, I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades who have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. But this time, he leaves that entire phrase out, and he says, I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades. The whom? The whom? The prophets. Notice, two parallel markers declare that the remnant community of faith at the end of time will be identified by obedience to God, including the Seventh-day Sabbath, and by its possession of the spirit of prophecy, the presence in its midst of a prophet sent to bring it the testimony of Jesus. This spirit of prophecy is not some little nebulous concept. It means, when you have it, that there will be a prophet in the midst. The remnant community, whatever this Sabbatarian community is, will have a prophet in its midst, according to the apocalypse. Now, again, you say, well, yeah, but but what is this compliment that Jesus gives? John's the greatest prophet at all of time. What can that possibly have to do with the remnant? Hold on. Notice again what Jesus says. There is no other prophet greater than than John the baptizer. Nobody born of a woman, which includes most of the human race, can be considered greater than John the baptizer, which being interpreted means that Amos and Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah 
All the great major and minor prophets of the Old Testament, not one of them can be considered greater than John the Baptist. Would you buy that? Not one. Which being interpreted means that Daniel and Ezekiel and Moses cannot be considered greater than John the Baptist. So far, is that logical? They can be considered equal to or lesser than, but can one of them be considered greater? Hmm? Impossible. Nobody born of a woman, greater prophet than John. Now, what gives John his preeminence? Obviously. God had to pick a human being to be the prophet that prepares the way for the coming Messiah. And John, born to old man Zechariah and Elizabeth, John gets the pick. And of all people born of a woman, there is no one greater than John. Now, besides that fact, there is also another very significant difference between John and all the great prophets. Do you know what that difference is? One of the difference. You know what it is? John wrote not one word in the Bible. No writings from John the baptizer. Do you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Jesus' compliment to John proves two points. Number one, you do not have to be canonical. Have your writings placed in Scripture in order to be a prophet. And number two, one does not have to be canonical to be considered a great prophet. The greatest prophet of all time wrote not a single word in the entire canon. I want you to listen to how Clifford Goldstein, who is editor of Liberty Magazine, in his own inimitable style, picks up a line here. Let me, let me read from Cliff. The Bible attests to several full-fledged, card-carrying prophets who never wrote anything that was included in it. After having impregnated a soldier's wife, and then having that soldier murdered so he could keep the woman for himself, David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, who declared, Thou art the man. And yet Nathan wrote nothing that was placed in the Bible. True. He is called in 2 Samuel 7-2, a prophet, yet not a single word of Nathan's appears in the Bible. And by the way, Cliff does not note this, but Nathan himself wrote writings according to 2 Chronicles. There were writings that Nathan composed that did not make it into the sacred canon. Elijah the prophet stood before Ahab, king of Israel, and said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Here too is a prophet of no little authority, yet he had no writings canonized either. One of the greatest, surely, not a single word canonized. What about the prophet Gad? What about the prophet Ahijah? The prophet Shemaiah? The prophet Edo? The prophet Obed? The prophet Elisha? the greatest miracle worker in the history of this world outside of Jesus Christ himself. Not a word in the scriptures composed by Elisha. In the days of the judges, Cliff goes on, the Hebrew nation was subdued by the Canaanite king Jabin, who for 20 years mightily oppressed the children of Israel. When the time for deliverance came, to whom did the people go for guidance, assurance, and leadership? To Deborah a prophetess who gave Israel instruction and even went to the battlefield herself in order to encourage the troops. Now, hold on. Not only did Deborah have no book in the Bible, but this prophet was a woman. And when Josiah is reading the great book 
of the law. And his heart is smitten. Oh, our people need a revival, Josiah cries out. And he turns to his servants. And the royal command, find a word from God. To whom do the servants turn? 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. They went to Huldah the prophetess. Who sends the message, thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, this phenomenon of a woman prophet is not unique to the Old Testament. Jesus has taken just a few days old to that dedication moment in the temple. And when Simeon picks him up and says, Now I can die, for I have seen the Messiah. She comes shuffling up. Seventy years she has been a prophetess, and her name is Anna. You go, to, you go to the book of Acts, and you have Philip the evangelist who has four virgin daughters, and all four are prophetesses. Now, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? You've got to know where I'm going with this. This compliment about John and these oft-forgotten truths about many of the Bible prophets. Here we go, folks. Point number one. You don't have to have writings in the Bible to be a great prophet. Point number two. You don't have to have writings in the Bible to be a prophet, period. Point number three. You don't have to be a man to be a prophet. Point four. What made John the Baptist the greatest of all prophets, even though he wrote not a single word in the canon of Scripture, was the fact that God chose him to be the prophet that prepared the way and a people for the coming of the Messiah. Take all four points, and the question begs to be asked. Could it therefore be that before the Messiah returns the second time, God will raise up another prophet just as He did before the Messiah's first coming, a prophet to prepare a people for the return of Christ, a prophet who will not have written a single word in Scripture, a prophet who would be great in the sight of heaven, a prophet who could be a woman? Can it happen? Could it happen? Enter now a woman who from the age of 17 until she died 70 years later received from God approximately 2,000 visions and dreams, visions that varied in length from less than a minute to nearly four hours. The knowledge and counsel she received from those revelations she wrote to be shared with others, resulting in 5,000 articles, 26 books during her lifetime, including compilations from her 55,000 pages of manuscript with more than 100 titles now available in English. From information that is available, get this, way. She may well be the most translated woman writer in the entire history of literature and the most translated American author of either gender. Her life-changing masterpiece on a success, on successful Christian living entitled Steps to Christ has been published in more than I said 135 first church and somebody came and corrected me. It is now one short of 150 different languages. Through her dynamic leadership, 
She helped raise up a Christian movement that today offers the largest Protestant educational system in the world and the most extensive Protestant health system on earth. Through her visionary leadership, the church she helped found is in more countries today than any other Protestant church on this planet. And without question, it has been her writings that have impacted the world of thought most significantly. Just this last week, get this, I saw a clip from CNN, the global news network. Do you know what? According to this clip, there is a Romanian general today who is in charge of the entire prison system of Romania. One day, he got a hold of, this, of a book called The Desire of Ages in Romania. He read the book. It moved him so much, he ordered that the book be published on government presses and distributed to every inmate in Romania. CNN got wind of it and said, this is incredible, a political operative distributing a religious book. Without question, ladies and gentlemen, her writings, it has been her writings that have impacted the world of thought most significantly. Writings covering a broad range of subjects including education, health, prophecy, nutrition, cultural and ethno-linguistic issues, creationism, and the origin of life. On that point, I need to say something. I, I'm reading a book right now by best-selling author. He's a historian. He's over here at Wheaton College outside of Chicago. His name is Mark Knoll. This was voted the top book in 1995, titled the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. In this book, Knoll, now you listen to this, Knoll refers to University of Wisconsin historian Ronald Numbers' newest book called The Creationist. And Noel makes this point. He explains how, and I'm quoting now, a popular belief known as creationism, a theory that the earth is 10,000 or less years old, has spread like wildfire in our century from its humble beginnings in the writings of Ellen White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, to its current status as a gospel truth embraced by tens of millions of Bible-believing evangelicals and fundamentalists all over the world, end quote. <laughs> Do you know what that means? This woman who brought the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, to the remnant community through her visions and writings has impacted the thought of the entire evangelical Christian community today through her seminal writings regarding creationism and the origin of life. This woman who began her Christian journey as a humble Methodist teenager was called by God to a prophetic ministry that was instrumental in raising up a remnant community of faith and truth known today as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The name of this prodigious writer and influential spiritual leader who was a woman. Her name, Ellen Gould White. You already knew that now, didn't you? Ellen White and her prophetic ministry since 1844. The author of what we have called through the years the Red Books. Because originally they were printed with maroon covers. But you have heard me muse out loud. I don't know why they call them the Red Books since nobody reads them anymore. It should be called the Unread Books. Because let's face it, in this world of political correctness, it is difficult to publicly assert, let alone admit the inspiration of Ellen White. Now, isn't it? Be honest. It is very difficult. And I finally figured out why. I figured it out in the last two weeks. 
why it is so difficult for us as Adventists to own up to the reality that God called this woman to a prophetic ministry in our midst. Here's how I found out. The author that helped me put my finger on this reason is one of the most brilliant legal scholars of America today. His name is Philip Johnson. For, tw- for the last 20 years, he's been law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Prior to that, he was the law clerk to the Supreme Court's Chief Justice Earl Warren, Philip Johnson. I'm reading right now, finishing up his book entitled Reason in the Balance, The Case Against Naturalism in Science, Law, and Education. Johnson powerfully, I believe powerfully, challenges what he sees as a naturalism foundation for all of American public thought. You say, wait a minute, preacher, what is this naturalism stuff? Hold on. Naturalism being that philosophy that postulates that man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. Therefore, God exists only as an idea in the minds of religious believers. Supernatural, they say out there. It's all a figment of your imagination. Tut, tut, tut. You ought to let such superstitions go now that you've grown up and become educated at last. Johnson's point? It is that kind of thinking that prevails American universities, American public schools, American law, and the American media. It is impossible not to be affected by naturalism if you've grown up in America and if you've gone to a university in America, almost impossible, at least subconsciously or subliminally, not to have been affected by naturalism, which says there is no supernaturalism, no God. It just happened. Therefore, Anything that smacks of direct divine intervention or direct divine communication, well, we all know that we can hardly believe such unfortunate rubbish. Right? And you know what, folks? The Seventh-day Adventist Church does not live in a vacuum. We live in a world of naturalism. And so into this world comes a Seventh-day Adventist, perhaps a graduate of Andrews University, who has read the writings of Ellen White and has discovered there a beautifully Christ-centered world of theology and philosophy and biblical history and biblical science, and yet all of a sudden, you are very much out of place. You are out of sync with your peers, out of sync with your colleagues. Should you dare open your mouth and declare that you believe that God took that young woman and gave to her the prophetic gift so that through revelations from Him, she was actually led by the Holy Spirit to champion long-lost or long-forgotten Bible truths? You wouldn't dare open your mouth, would you? Has it come to the place where we won't even open our mouths here either? Well, even if you dared to believe in Ellen White, which you certainly might have as a child, how would you dare risk the ridicule or the wrath of colleagues whose erudite education declares that direct and divine interventions in the human system of thought are simply superstitious error, the product of misguided and misplaced spiritual zeal. Do you know what, folks? If we weren't so bright, we might almost conclude that someone, someone was the masterful 
intelligent mind behind the creation of the philosophy of naturalism and the doctrine in its extreme form of evolution. Maybe somebody has always had it out for the Creator God and designed a system of thought that totally denudes supernaturalism and faith in an intervening God. Wow, wouldn't you know it? He would come up with that theory at the very time God was raising up a remnant community of faith and truth that would call the world back to the Creator God and His Sabbath at the end of the seven-day creation week. Wouldn't you know it? 1859 is the date that the origin of species was introduced to the world. At the same time, Ellen White's prophetic ministry began championing the biblical truth about the Creator God. She would become the most prolific woman author in defense of supernaturalism, and he, Charles Darwin, would become the most influential author in defense of naturalism. Same time. Wouldn't you know that the dragon was wroth with the woman? And why not? The supernatural ministry of the spirit of prophecy exposes the Achilles heel of Satan's final strategy. And if you were Satan, wouldn't you want to discredit and destroy that prophetic ministry with all the power that you had? Note this very carefully. It is precisely, according to Revelation 12, 17, it is precisely because the testimony of Jesus through the spirit of prophecy is granted to that remnant community for that reason precisely. The dragon is so enraged with this community that he sets out to destroy it and that gift. They have a gift from Jesus, and it spells his doom. But my dear pioneer family, right now, I am not preaching to the world out there. I am talking to the church in here. Please, listen to me carefully. It may not be evolution that has caused us to turn aside from the prophetic ministry of Ellen White. It may not be public embarrassment that has led us to quietly ignore the authoritative appeal of her writings. We all know in our heart of hearts that she never claimed to be on par with the Scriptures. She is not canonical. Never said she was. We have never claimed that she is. We all know in our heart of hearts that she kept describing her writings as a lesser light that pointed, as the moon does, to the greater light of the sun, S-O-N, in the Scriptures. We already know that in Christian humility, this godly woman lived out her passionate love for Christ in every page she wrote, in every vision she described, in every ministry she raised up. Then why is it, my fellow Adventists, that we have such a hard time with the writings of Ellen White? Why? Could it be that the reason we no longer turn to her is the same reason Herod sought to destroy John the Baptist because the prophet kept reminding the king that there was sin in his life and everybody loves a religion that does not deal with sin. Kill the prophet until those silent lips in a pool of blood on a silver platter stare through eyes that cannot see, 
And to the face of wily King Herod, got rid of the prophet. Only problem was, he couldn't get rid of the spirit. And he took to his own grave a conscience seared and an eternity lost, all because he rejected the word of the prophet to him. I'm asking you, as bluntly as I can ask it, is that why you too have attempted to stifle the voice of the prophet? Do you run from the God of the prophet too? I tremble. I always tremble when I hear the proud assertion from some soul that he or she no longer believes in the spirit of prophecy. And I wonder inside, could it be that that backslidden boast is but a futile effort to cover up the reproving voice of some cherished sin? Oh, but pastor, you say, Oh, Pastor, come on, give me a break. You don't know how her writings were misused when I was a kid growing up. I mean, they were used like a club, and I was beaten over the head with it. I have rejected it for good cause. My friend, you have. It is a tragedy how the writings of Ellen White have been misused in the Seventh-day Adventist community. Legalism has grabbed her writings and attempted to batter grace and faith and assurance out of us. But I need to say this. No matter how it was that you grew up, no matter how it was that she was presented on the platter to you, shall we let past misuse become an excuse for present disuse? We can't. We cannot. We're a new generation in Adventism. It's time for us, like the cornflakes commercial touts, it's time for us to taste them again for the first time. It's time for us to pick those red books and make them really red this time. Really read. My friends, it is time for the return of the remnant. God has raised up this community of faith and truth. And God has asked us to take our stand for the testimony of Jesus. For that reason, God has entrusted to us a most precious gift in the spirit of prophecy. Now mark this and mark it well. It is not a gift to the world. It is a legacy for the church. The people who attempt to use it for the world are wrong. It's a legacy. To the church. After this was all written up last night, all marked up, ready to go, 11 o'clock at night, telephone rings. There's a woman on the other end from British Columbia. She says, Pastor, I just had to call. We just finished watching what you had on your campus the opening Sabbath of the school year, something called the bridge where you were sharing as a campus community together the high priestly ministry of Jesus going on at this moment in the most holy place, a ministry that indicates we are in wrap-up time. God is ready to go when we are. She said, we just finished watching this. And she said, my 16-year-old boy, who is a long way spiritually from Jesus, happened to sit through that New Perceptions telecast on 3 ABN. And as he sat there, he listened. And when he was through, Pastor, and that's why I'm calling you, I'm just telling you, when he was through, he went over to the telephone and he dialed another 16-year-old friend of his named Matt. And he said, Matt, I want to tell you something. We don't have our lives together with Jesus. It's time that we take God seriously. Matt, meet me at the park. Let's pray together.
16-year-old boy. I told her, woman, that isn't the message of this campus. That's not the message of this pulpit. That is present truth for this generation. And I remind you, ladies and gentlemen who are here, that we have that present truth today that has always been in the Scriptures, but we have it today because God called a teenage girl and gave her a vision with a mission. What we have here is a sacred legacy. It is not a gift for the world. It is a legacy for the church. And in it is the rich treasure chest of Jesus our Lord. Twenty-one years ago last month, I met Jesus as a graduate student here on this campus. And wouldn't you know it, fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. I would meet him in the stairway of the theological seminary where a professor of mine, in response to my anguished guilt, told me, go back to the Maplewood Apartments. Go read Steps to Christ. And I did. And the title of that little classic from the pen of Ellen White became a self-fulfilling prophecy in my life. And I found the Jesus of the Gospels, and I found the Christ of the Scriptures through that little book. And the guilt, and the dark fear, and the anxiety were washed away. And I found in Jesus a peace and a forgiveness and a brand new hope. So you can understand that I'm a bit partial to the ministry of this woman. For me, it has meant the difference between life and death. And what grew out of that encounter with Christ through steps to Christ, by the grace of Jesus, has attempted to be for the last 21 years a daily quest to get to know this Jesus more. And I must tell you that it has been the writings of Ellen White that have taken me back to the Gospels and reintroduced me day after day after day to my Lord Jesus. I'm making no boast to you. I ain't perfect. But I have found a perfect Savior. And for me, that woman with her prophetic gift, became the avenue of salvation. I love Desire of Ages. I read that book 11 times now. And you know what? After you've read Steps to Christ and Desire of Ages, I'm telling you, wherever you turn, title after title, you will keep running in to her twin passions. She is a woman who had a passion for Christ as her Savior. I have read hundreds and hundreds of authors, as you have, but I have never in my life found someone with a deeper passion for the Lord Jesus than Ellen White. There are two passions she has. 
concomitant with her passion for Jesus is her passion to seek and save the lost. I have never, in all the reading that I have read, ever run heartlong into such a fiery longing to save this dying planet for Christ. Is she who I turn to first? She is not. With you I go to the scriptures, of course. Is she all I read? Of course not. But this much I am able to testify today. Outside of scripture, there are no writings that bring the voice of God to my soul more powerfully and distinctly than the writings of Ellen White outside of the Holy Bible. Hey, listen, folks. There is no way that I can persuade you. Impossible. But I would like to appeal to you with all of my pastoral heart. Please, please, give her another chance. In the words of great King Jehoshaphat, Believe in the Lord your God, so will you be established. Believe His prophets, and so will you prosper. Because I'm convinced that if in the end the remnant abandons the gift, then in the end they will have abandoned the giver. And that in the end will spell the end to the remnant. It must not be. For the sake of your soul, I invite you to taste and see for yourself the passion of Jesus Christ in the writings of Ellen White. Taste them again for the first time. Eternal Father, we ask you but one thing, that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of the face of Jesus for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.